Hello again. Uh, as a church, we, uh, in the last year and a half, kind of on and off again, have been uh, walking verse by verse through the book of Luke in the Bible. Uh, Luke is one of four books in the Bible that's specifically about the life uh, and teachings, death, rise, and res- resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I'd love for you to follow along with our passage today so you can study it yourself. There's a Bible under every chair. Uh, we are going to be on page 843, uh, or uh, you can uh, look at it on your phone if you like. You just need the Renovation Church app. I just have Bible and weekly verses, and uh, you'll see it there as well. Uh, I know this may be uh, your first time uh, here this morning, so welcome uh, to you. Uh, But for those of you who were here uh, last week, uh, when we started chapter 10 uh, in the book of Luke, uh, you'll know that last week Jesus sent out 72 messengers to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Uh, And this week, as we start at verse 17, uh, you're going to see the messengers have come back to Jesus rejoicing and Jesus is going to teach us some more about how to come to him, how to be used to him. So uh, let's take a look at our passage. So Luke chapter 10, uh, we're going 17 through 24 today. Uh, Here's what it says. It says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, this is Jesus, he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At the time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one who knows the Son, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Okay, I think there really are two biblical principles from this passage in particular that I want to draw out this morning, both of them on humility. So let's take a look at the first one. The first one is this. If you are going to come to God, you can only come in humility. So look at verse 21, if you have it in front of you still. Jesus actually says that he has hidden his truths, that God has hidden his truths from the wise and the learned, and instead he has revealed them to little children. In fact, it even says that God was pleased to operate in that way. Like, well, what is that about? He's hidden his truths from the wise and learned. I don't want you to look at this and think that somehow Christianity is anti-intellectual. This, we often say, is a thinking person's church. Uh, We don't check our minds at the door here. Uh, You know, if you read the New Testament, for example, uh, you'll know that one of its writers, the Apostle Paul, is one of the greatest thinkers of all of uh, history. So what is Jesus saying in verse 21 when he says, God has hidden his truths from the wise and the learned? Uh, He's talking about those who think they're incredibly wise in their own mind, in their own eyes. Uh, You might even paraphrase the passage this way, that God has hidden his truth from the know-it-alls. We're talking about people who believe that they are too smart for God. And there are many people like that. Some of us used to be those people. 
So what's underneath that sort of thinking? Okay, so let me give you a few examples. When someone says, I've determined that science has all of the answers, and therefore I have no need for God. Or, or sometimes people will say, I've determined that God would never allow suffering like this. And so I've determined that there is no God. Or I hear people nowadays say things like, I've determined that a good God wouldn't say that the way I want to live is wrong, so therefore the God of the Bible doesn't exist. What's underneath that sort of thinking? Uh, let's see if we can kind of dive deep underneath the motivation for that thinking. When a person says that, what they're really saying is they're saying that I, one of 7.7 billion people currently on the earth, one of billions more to ever even walk the face of this earth, I, who also am just the product of my own culture's thinking, I, who also am just the product of my own era's thinking, I, of all people on earth, the billions and billions, I know who God should be. And if he isn't who I think he should be, then I won't follow him. And what Jesus is saying in the scriptures is those people, because of their immense pride and what they think that they know and how they believe life should go, he said, those people, they're never going to come to me. Because remember, you can only come to God in humility. I mean, to say that we know better on how life should go than God is sort of the peak of pride, right? And I want you to think about this. I'm not sure people actually articulate this or flesh this out very well, the ramifications of it philosophically. If God acted 100% exactly the way that you thought he should in all circumstances, then he couldn't be God. Because then, by definition, his mind wouldn't be any higher than yours. You could determine exactly how God should act. And then it would be like God was the same as you. And then, well, that just gets messy, right? The Apostle Paul points this out in his letter to the Corinthians, the importance of humble thinking. Uh, look at this. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That little last clause there is really important. Paul says God's choosing the lowly things of the world so that no one may boast. When you surrender your life to God, there's nothing that you can boast in. Why? Because you, you don't earn your way to Christ. You just believe that he died on the cross for you. To, to come to Jesus is, by definition, to empty yourself of pride. It's to surrender. I mean, think of this action in life. When you go like this, any pride in doing this? Uh, uh. That's, that's, the, that's the emptying of your pride, right, to surrender. But you can't come to God unless you surrender your life. And if you haven't surrendered your life, then you probably actually haven't come to God. And so Jesus tells us in Luke 10 that the people who have God revealed to them, where God really starts moving in their life, are actually more like little children than they are like know-it-alls. Now think about that, little kids. There's a lot of things that are fascinating about little kids, right? One is they ask a lot of questions. 
Another thing I think that's really interesting about kids is kids can live in a tension of mystery that adults often really struggle to live in. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, my kids are really into the Lion King right now. And so they, we watched the movie uh, not that long ago. And uh, do you remember the part in the movie? I'll just throw up a picture. You were there, they're lying on the grass, and Timon and Pumbaa are debating about what the stars are. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and Timon says he thinks that they're fireflies that get stuck up in the sky, and then Pumbaa says, I always thought they were balls of gas <laughs> burning billions of miles away, which I always think, why is Pumbaa uh, talking about miles and not using the metric system in Africa? But uh, <laughs> why, why is a warthog talking, I guess? Uh, <laughs> so we finished watching the movie, and then later that night, my son uh, said to me, he said, Dad, what are the stars, really? And I had to say, well, actually, Pumbaa is right. <laughs> And he goes, what? Because to him, actually, the firefly answer probably makes more sense, right? So I'm thinking, oh, oh man, how am I going to explain astronomy and some chemistry to a six-year-old? So I do my best, and I say something like, well, buddy, they're just like uh, fiery things that light up far away, kind of like our sun. Our sun is a star, kind of like that. And I give some, I don't know, three out of ten explanation. And he looks back at me, and he goes, Okay. Get a moves on. See, that's a child, okay? Does he understand everything about it? No, but he doesn't need to because I'm his father and he loves me and he trusts me. And for now, that's enough. But see, most adults, we don't operate like that. Adults, when we grill in and we're trying to figure things out, we don't get everything answered to our complete satisfaction. We often will say, listen, I can't make 100% sense of it, and if I can't make 100% sense of it, then it must be wrong, so I'm just going to assume my previous thinking was right. We can't, we really struggle to live in the mystery, in the incompleteness of knowledge that we sometimes have. Now, don't hear me incorrectly. I'm not saying that Christians need to live with intellectual contradictions or anything like that. But I am saying that you shouldn't expect to understand everything about God because you're not God. This all reminds me of a book I finished a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was the uh, biography of Adoniram Judson. Uh, he was the first missionary from America, actually, uh, to go out on the mission field. He went to uh, what was then uh, Burma uh, in Asia. Uh, to my reader friends uh, in the room, uh, this is the best page-turner biography uh, that I have ever read. I couldn't put it down. I uh, highly recommend it. So uh, Adoniram Judson, uh, even though he grew up in a pastor's home, so this is kind of in the uh, early 1800s is the setting, out in uh, East. He lived in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, he grew up in a pastor's home. Eventually, he goes away to a Brown College in Providence. And when he gets to college, he walks away from his faith. He, like many young people today, he determined that he was too smart for God. Uh, one of his main reasons for uh, walking away from Christ is he had this a friend in college uh, named Jacob Eames. Now, Jacob Eames was a deist. Uh, if you don't know what deism is, uh, deism is essentially the uh, religious belief that there is a God, but all God does is sort of make creation. He sets the universe in motion, gives the earth a spin, and from then on out, he does nothing. He doesn't interact with the world. God is merely a being that caused creation to 
exist. And so Adoniram Judson, this person the book is about, he fell in in college with his friend Jacob Eames, and he decided that logic clearly demonstrated that Jesus was not real, that God doesn't interact with the world. And so if God doesn't interact with the world, then that means the Bible is a bunch of baloney because that's about God interacting with the world. And Jesus, of course, couldn't have existed because that's really God interacting with the world. And he decides, Adoniram Judson, that he's going to forsake his faith. Not long after college, he tells his uh, mom and dad that he's uh, leaving. He's just a real prodigal son moment. And they're just crying. And he goes off to New York City to live for pleasure and for fame. And he gets there, and he doesn't find much of pleasure, and he certainly doesn't find much money. And after really a, a fairly relatively short amount of time, he sort of gives up on it. But he's not, unlike the prodigal son, he's not ready to go back home. He still is just wrestling with life, and he wants pleasure and fame, and he's not sure that he really even believes in God at all. And so he keeps running far away from home. He gets on his horse. He just keeps traveling out west this time. And eventually... One night, he comes to this really obscure, tiny village in the middle of nowhere, far, far away from home. And there's only one inn in the town, and he, uh, he gets to the innkeeper, and he says, hey, do you have any rooms left? And the innkeeper says, I just have one room, but I'm not sure that you would actually want it because the man in the room next door is dying. And Adoniram Judson says, uh, whatever, I'm exhausted. You know, I'll, t- I'll take the room. She goes to the room, and that night, he was unable to sleep. For whatever reason, his conscience was just hounding him. And as he heard the man's, the dying man's groans through the wall, he began to think of death. He thought, am I prepared for death? And what maybe comes after? Is that man in the room next door to me prepared for death? Judson began to think of his father, the pastor, and how his father's character And his fruit in his life was just so much greater than all the people he met in New York City living for pleasure and fame. And then he began to think, what if my father was right about Jesus and heaven and hell and all of it? And then he had this thought, he thought, what would my old friend, the deist Jacob Eames, say if he knew I was thinking these things? Finally, after a sleepless night, in the morning he leaves his room, and he's kind of checking out, and he says to the innkeeper, kind of out of curiosity, he says, hey, how's the, uh, the man in the room next to me? Uh, is, is he any better? And the innkeeper says, uh, no, actually, he's dead. And Adoniram Jebson, you know, just kind of out of respect, it was cultural at the time, said, you know, may I ask the man's name? And the innkeeper said, yeah, he was a, a young man from this college uh, way far away out in Providence. His name was Jacob Eames. Judson's best friend, who had led him away from Christ, died in the room next to him that very night. The one who said that God doesn't interact with the world, that God's not in control of our circumstances, perishes in the room next to Judson in an obscure, faraway town. And in an instant, all of Adam Judson's pride about Jesus not being real and how he was so smart and God doesn't interact with our world just shattered. And in a few months' time, Adam Judson fully devoted his life to Christ. Eventually after that, he devoted his life to the missions movement. And soon enough, he became the very first missionary sent out from the United States of America. 
Now, I think we each have moments like this. You know, maybe it's not quite on that scale, but moments where we think that we know better. And we've been coming to God, and we've been telling him, I'm not going to give my life over to you because I just know better. And then something happens in your life. Something that you just can't chalk up to coincidence. Or maybe you just see God start to move. You see him move in the people around you. You're going, what is that? In those moments... I just want to tell you, when the God of the universe is revealing himself to you, come to him like a child. Not like one who knows better. Elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus says this, book of Mark. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, that's letting God into your life, like a little child, will never enter it. There's a lot in this passage. Uh, Jesus, his principles of humility in this passage aren't just for coming to God in the first place. Uh, there's a lot in there for those of us who are already walking with him. Uh, so look at verses 18 through 20 again, if you have it in front of you. It says, he, Jesus, replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions, to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. So they come back rejoicing. Oh, all this stuff has happened through us. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, so here's the second principle of humility that you find in Luke chapter 10 here. And the second one is this. For the Christians, if you are going to be used by God, you must stay humble. So the 17 messengers come back and they're just kind of rejoicing like, oh, look at all this stuff that happened through us. Now, that's not bad, per se. If you're going to rejoice in anything, we should be rejoicing in God's movement. But Jesus kind of gives them a little warning, like, okay, that's all right, but be careful here. Because this is a, sort of a thin, dangerous road you're on. So he says, what, honestly, what you should really rejoice in, this is verse 20. He says, what you should really rejoice in is that your names are written in heaven. Now, this is a biblical concept you see in a number of places in the Bible. The idea is, if you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, that means you have believed that he died on the cross for your sins, you're a follower of his, uh, the Bible says that your name is actually written in the book of life, it's called. And the, the book of life is this book in heaven that if you're a believer, your name's in it. In fact, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, says you actually can't get into heaven unless your name is in that book. And Jesus is saying, that's what you need to rejoice in, that you are forgiven in the first place. And we got to remember that, especially as God starts moving through you. For those of you in this room that are leaders, or you're, you're a leader, and I know some of you are, are visiting families today, maybe you're a leader in your church. And for those of you that are leaders here, you lead a house group or a small group or a ministry, or you lead something outside of this church. Jesus is saying to you, in his word today, don't rejoice in the things that you do. Like, what? I lead this ministry. I go to Haiti. My streak on you version is 300 days. Whatever, right? He said, no, no, no. Rejoice that God saved you in the first place. Because what happens is as soon as you start having some success in spiritual things, you feel like the Lord is actually moving through you the challenge is you are now susceptible to the very same thing that kept people, keeps people from coming to God in the first place, and that is pride. 
And if you have pride, that will keep God from really using you. Because as soon as you start thinking, oh, well, I'm actually pretty, I'm a pretty good leader. Or here's another example. Sometimes as parents, we do this. Like, I'm, you're looking at all the other parents in the room, and you're going, I'm actually a pretty good Christian parent. Like, I read the Bible to my kids. I take my kids to church. My kids don't. And you've got a whole list. Like, they don't play violent video games. They don't. When you see that in yourself, that will cause your knees to shake a little bit. Jesus is trying to ground us in the gospel. We're sinners. Who is, it's, it's unfathomable that we were even saved in the first place. He's trying to ground us in the gospel so our heads don't float away with pride and one day we get popped. See, the only reason anything good is happening in our lives right now is because God saved us and his Holy Spirit is in us. Rejoice in that, not in what you're doing. Pride is so dangerous. Now, there's no coincidence here that in this very passage that Jesus reminds them of Satan's downfall, his fall from heaven. Satan, the devil, was actually once far holier than any of us, far greater, far more powerful. He was an angel in heaven. And it was his pride that caused him to fall. Let me tell you something. Satan didn't fall from heaven because he was a drunkard or because he was an adulterer, but because he was prideful. See, that makes me think that we don't take pride as seriously as we ought to. If pride was the sin that caused an angel from heaven to fall, and you see that same sin in yourself, that ought to drop you to your knees. And so in the text, Jesus praises God that it wasn't the prideful know-it-alls that he sent out to spread his message. Okay, because what happens? What if Jesus, instead of the 72, what if he sends out the prideful know-it-alls to do the work? What would have happened? I'll tell you what would have happened. The prideful know-it-alls, they would have went out and they would have thought, yeah, Jesus, yeah, he told us to say this, but <clears throat> I think I could improve on his message a little bit. Like, nobody wants to hear about hell or demons or anything like that. Let me just improve it. Well, I, you know, I know he said, say this way and the whole dust thing, but I could improve on his methods, right? That's what prideful know-it-alls do. They do other things too. The, the 72 come back and they rejoice that things happen in his name. But prideful people rejoice that things are happening in their name, that they get the glory, that they're the famous pastor, or they're the famous leader in their church. They live not for his glory, but for their glory. And when you act like that, when you try and change the message and change the method and live for your glory, God will not use you. I think this is an important question here before we even go further. Are you, are you letting God use you in the first place? Like, what are, you, what are you asking God to do through you right now to bless other people? I want you to think of that. How is it specifically that you're asking God to use you to bless other people around you in this church, outside of this church, in your neighborhood at work? How are you asking him to do that? This is a hard word, but if you can't answer that question, if you're going, I don't really know how I'm asking. If you can't answer that question, I would say if you can't even answer it quickly, then go home tonight 
get on your knees and start asking God that question again. If you can't answer that question of how do you want God to use you to bless other people around you, you, like many, 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 many Americans, you need to begin to read the New Testament again with fresh eyes, your own eyes, so that you can get an inoculation from this indoctrination of this false gospel of Christian consumerism. Millions of Americans now believe from false teaching that our faith is just about God helping our lives get better. We just take some more of God and improve my life and help me get this and improve this and feel better on this. God does not exist to serve you. You exist to serve God. And if that's true, and it is because that's the teaching of the Bible then what are you hoping that God can use you to bless other people? Because he wants to use you. That's his plan, to put his Holy Spirit in you, spread you around, and change this world. But for the many of you that can answer that question, like, yeah, I want God to do this through my life, remember, remember, the teaching of this passage is if he's going to do it, you have got to stay humble. And that means trusting in his ways in his teaching, in his method, in his timing, and giving him the glory. If you persist in pride, he will use someone else. You know what he'll do? He will use someone not as smart as you, uh, someone not as strong as you, uh, someone who doesn't have the same sort of relational skills maybe that you naturally have. He will use someone who is humble and will just obey him. They'll do it. Let me tell you something. If God, and I bet this is true for so many of you, if God continually keeps coming to you and he's putting something on your heart, you know what I'm talking about? That thing that you just like keep thinking of all the time. If he keeps putting something in your heart, on your mind, and you, in your wisdom, because that's what we do, in our wisdom, we keep saying no to him by our inaction. That's how we say no. And deep inside, we're going, no, I know you keep telling me this, but I'm not going to do it because, well, I just this would happen, and that wouldn't go well. And what is that? You know what that is? Well, it's pride. It's saying, God, you said do this, but I know better that I shouldn't do this because this, this, and this would happen. If you persist in pride, he's just going to use somebody else. This is true for our church, too, as a whole, for all of us. Yes, we're growing quickly and we're planting churches. We're building a brand new building, for goodness sakes, just nine months from now. But if we think, oh, we got this figured out, we know how to do this, we're going to make this work. If we stop coming to him in prayer and just begging for him to move, then I guarantee you, he's just going to raise up another church in our place to do what we want to do. Uh, I read a quote uh, from uh, Jim Cimbala about a month ago that really struck me. I actually printed it out, put it up in my office, and he says this. He says, God is attracted to weakness. Have you admitted your weakness to him? He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Now look at this. He says, our weakness, in fact, makes room for his power. Our walk with God, this is why we get on our knees every day, is this constant reminder that he is worthy, we are needy. 
And we got to remind ourselves of that every day. Every day, I just fall right back into pride. I think I got this. So every day, I need to be on my knees in prayer, studying the word. Every Sunday, I'm, I'm here. I'm hearing the teaching. I'm in the word. Because I'm just naturally going to keep puffing myself up in pride. And we remind ourselves, lastly, of who found who. Look at, the, look at the very end of verse 22 again. Jesus says, No one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son, look at this, chooses to reveal him. Okay, th- what that's saying is that if you're a follower of Jesus, the only reason you even know him in the first place is because he chose to reveal the Father to you. That's why the name of the series for the book of Luke is Lost and Found. We were lost. He found us. We didn't find him. And in that, we rejoice. That we were sinful wanderers that he came looking for, that he died for, and he found us. And so when we come to him, we always come humbly. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, more humility as a church, as a people, and that we would recognize how weak we are, how needy we are, and just how powerful you are. In your name we pray. Amen.